0: Context really matters. Let me give you the edited highlights of some of my life successes and prove that point. I spoke on environmental issues in the United Nations building in Nairobi, Kenya. I was only 13. I came third in the Audi Young Designer of the Year Award when I was 18. I worked abroad, I got married at 21, travelled the world, volunteered in an orphanage, have three lovely daughters. I uh, wrote the strategy for one of the top five UK charities. I was put forward by the Church of England to train as a minister. I chose not to and instead got paid to do a master's degree in business. And despite having no first degree, managed to apply this newfound wisdom and doubled the revenue of a tech startup three years on the trot. Oh, and I bought a dog. (laughs) If you pick your words carefully, Anyone can have a highlights reel. Let me give you the same life events with a little bit more context. So that talk in the United Nations building in Kenya, well, my mum basically wrote everything I said, and I basically uh, looked like that. (laughs) Um, In fact, she wrote the essay that got me there in the first place. As for the... (laughs) The Audi Young Designer Award, well, in the t- words of my tutor... it's mm-hmm, only one button to press, Still get it right. Third place is a miracle, Mr. Adams, given your supporting written work had more holes than a piece of Swiss cheese. <laughs> Thank you, Mr. Kelly, for the early life affirmation. Um, I travelled the world because I flunked my A-levels. I worked in an orphanage because whilst travelling the world, I swiftly ran out of money. Um, having three daughters, Cautious is what I say with one of them in the room. Whilst a huge privilege is also just as messy a reality as you would expect. This week evidenced by the 6 a.m. screaming battle over who had stolen whose Nike Pro shorts. An incident which made our upstairs landing feel a little more like the Gaza Strip. <laughs> that strategy I wrote for the major charity, well that never really got implemented. The vicar thing, well it's taken me about 10 years to get back up and preach since walking away from that door. I don't think even Jonah bailed for a decade. (laughs) I couldn't tell you I didn't do the training. Um, The tech startup, well, that went into administration, and everyone, myself included, was made redundant. Oh, and the dog, well, the dog is close to the end of her days. The astute amongst you will note that the only thing I didn't reference was getting married. I'm trying to make a point, not wreck a home. (laughs) The point is that context really matters. Uh, And we are about to dive into a few verses that were written a few thousand years ago that reference a few more verses that were written a few thousand years earlier. And if we don't get the right context, we could easily go away, at best, just missing the point, but at worst, genuinely feeling like the message is not for us. So that's what I want to do. I want to look at the context around when Jesus was speaking, The context of this uh, verse that he references when he said, you've heard this, but. uh, And then I want to step through those three examples that he gives to the disciples. So let's start uh, with that context. And of course, uh, these short little four verses come in the context of the Sermon on the Mount. But the Sermon on the Mount comes in the context itself of another sermon and another mountain. And actually the verses that we're looking at this evening point us straight back there to exodus to the ten commandments and to mount sinai so let's just look uh at these these um oh hello apologies okay let's just look at three quick things that give us this flavor of same same but different between these two uh events that we're looking at so first of all think about the format between them. There are some obvious physical similarities when we think about uh, the the Sermon on the Mount. Um, First of all, we've got God, his people, and a hill. There are some structural similarities going on. Both messages follow the same format, starting with a nice, memorable list. The Ten Commandments, the Eight Beatitudes, And then if you go on, if you scan Exodus 20 or if you scan Matthew 5, you see that they both transition into these much longer teachings with more detail and arguably a little bit more punch. So the format of these two are quite similar. Look at the audience. In Exodus, God is speaking through Moses to the Israelites. And in Matthew, with our verses this evening, Jesus is speaking, at least in the first instance, to his disciples, So they're both messages for God's people. And in that sense, it's not an evangelistic message about maybe hope or forgiveness, uh, but instead it's a much more incisive message that we can expect about how we, as followers of Christ, should act as salt and light in the world today, as Andy spoke about a couple of weeks ago. So the audiences are, in that sense, similar. But then we look at the delivery of the message, because if we miss this, we miss the real beauty of what is going on here. In Exodus, Moses is up and down Mount Sinai as he shuttle runs teachings from God at the top in a cloud to the people back down at the bottom. In the context of our message here in Matthew, Jesus starts at the bottom of the mountain. He leaves the crowds, says he saw the crowds and went up onto the mountainside. And he sits amongst his disciples and teaches them. And over the course of perhaps a few hours, by the time he draws things to a close, crowds have settled back around him. We see in Matthew 7, 28, it says, when Jesus finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed. So Jesus is physically changing the context for this message with his presence. If the Old Testament law... Has changed in some way. It's not because the disciples are told something different, but because Jesus is physically with them when he tells them something different. And so now, as we revisit both these Old and New Testament teachings, we do so with God in our midst. Let me just pray into that. Jesus, thank you that as we approach your word and your teaching, we do so not with the need for an intermediary but under the guidance of your Holy Spirit and with your presence amongst us. You have heard it said, an eye for an eye, tooth for tooth. So what have they heard said? Where have they heard this before? Uh, Well, we've already kind of given that away in part. Uh, We know that it's in Exodus, in chapter 20, just uh, after the Ten Commandments, But it also pops up again in Leviticus, and again in Deuteronomy. So let's just sense check the context of those and make sure that we understand it as they would have. In Exodus 21, 23, verses, but if there is serious injury, you are to take life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. So we see these exact words coming up. This is given in the context of retribution for personal injury. And the greatest personal injury, I guess, would lead to death. So in that sense, it's perhaps leading us back to one of those 10 commandments, do not murder. And the purpose was to prevent escalation in retaliation, that kind of constant one-upmanship we see in revenge cycles which can spiral out of control. Let's not forget that only a few verses earlier, they were given the teaching, do not murder. That kind of feels like it should be a given, but apparently they needed to call that out specifically, but it pops up again. we see the same phrase come up in Leviticus that uh, this time it's actually in the context of a blasphemer being stoned, uh, so just pulling out verse 20, fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, and you can read the context. Uh, if if you want to take more time with this. But again, it's linking back to one of the Ten Commandments, and it's about not misusing the name of God. And actually, this here is about the consequence and the severity of sin, in this case, referencing blasphemy. And then again, we see this phrase pop up one last time uh, in Deuteronomy 19, verse 21, and here it's in the context, slightly different, it's in the context of bearing witness uh, against a crime, um, but the verse again show no pity, life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. So, wherever we go and look for it, the context of this phrase, eye for an eye, tooth for tooth, is to establish justice by prescribing punishments that match the severity of the crime. And so, when Jesus says to the disciples, You have heard it said, these are the examples that they would likely be springing to mind. Legalistic descriptions to prevent escalation in revenge, but in doing so, also reinforcing the reality of the consequence of sin. But I tell you, he goes on and gives three particular examples. The first one, Do not resist an evil person. If someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. So I think this is an interesting place to start because actually when you consider all the things we've just looked at in the Old Testament, whilst they touch on minor harm, they all seem to escalate pretty rapidly, often ending in murder. Now don't fact check this, but I don't think many people have died from a slap in the face or at least it would certainly be a surprise. But I did do a bit of you know, cultural, let's see where we're landing today, with slapping someone in the face. Um, this is what came up when I typed it into Google. Uh, so accounting for current culture, I should refer you to this image. This is Ryan Phillips slapping Rob Perez at a power slap event in Las Vegas in March last year a growing sport, and I quote, in which athletes can step up in the hope of winning as much as £10,000 in prize money. Now, whether you think that's a lot or a little, I can confirm it's not enough to pay for the inevitable corrective surgery required afterwards. Back to reality. The point that I am making is that whatever has happened in the last 2,000 years, actually the thing that hasn't changed is that a slap on the face fundamentally is about Giving insult. Whether it's done hard to elicit anger or even gently in one of those little patronizing taps on the cheek, it stands as a mechanism to taunt or provoke or humiliate. And this is where Jesus chooses to start. Where the disciples could certainly have been forgiven for jumping straight to issues of retribution for major physical harm, Jesus pivots immediately and talks about self control in the face of damage to our pride. So this is perhaps less about trying to be some kind of Gandhi in some grand act of non-violent resistance, but perhaps a more relatable call to put aside our pride in the face of the more day-to-day humiliation that we encounter as followers of Christ. When have you responded to a slap in the face moment? Perhaps that moment of road rage when someone just cuts you up, the sharp response to a partner, sometimes spoken or just uttered silently to ourselves as we try to satisfy that need to get even. The response that Jesus describes is not a passive-aggressive, you know, raise of those kind of controlled eyebrows as if to say, I'm above you and your actions, but somehow to find love and choose a response which brings peace. In the culture that we find ourselves in, it is more often my pride than my physical safety that is at risk. Say that again. In the culture that we find ourselves in, it is more often my pride than my physical safety that is at risk. And so this teaching suddenly seems deeply relevant. Now, we should pause here quickly and just be clear about what this message is not saying. Jesus is not in any manner suggesting that if you are being physically or emotionally hurt, that you should not only take it, but that you should go back for more. The audience, his disciples, who he knows, uh, he is tackling the issue of pride, and this is consistent with his wider teachings. If we're in any doubt, we actually see in John 18, verse 22... Jesus himself is slapped in the face, and he doesn't passively offer his other cheek, but instead challenges the man on his actions and motivations. Context. Cloaks or tunics. If anyone wants to sue you and take your tunic, hand over your cloak as well. We often use the phrase, cut your losses, or maybe if you were seeking some legal advice or financial advice, You might hear a a phrase like minimising your risk exposure. So the idea of, in a legal matter even, increasing your exposure in some way or increasing your losses really does feel quite odd. There's something in this specific example that Jesus is using too. A tunic, like a shirt, was an item of comfort. Cheap, thin, replaceable. A cloak, by contrast, was an item of safety, often used to sleep on or under, keeping you warm and sheltered in the cold of night, thick, more costly, more permanent. I didn't actually read this in the message version, but it feels like this somehow might translate as, don't just give up your seat on the bus, give up your life jacket on the sinking ship. The media is full, isn't it, of rhetoric about me and my rights and what I deserve. And Jesus cuts through this and says, you want to be salt and light? Don't just give up your rights to comfort. Give up your life to safety. Then that light will start to shine. And then he goes on. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two. Give to the one who asks and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. At the time that this was spoken, there was a law under which a Roman soldier marching from city to city could ask a member of the public to carry their kit and equipment for them. Not only would this be an exhausting thing to have to do, but it would also, I imagine, be a massive inconvenience. So Jesus is grabbing a current cultural example and redefining what was a legal obligation as an opportunity for generosity and service. And he goes on, give to the one who asks you, do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. So finally, Jesus says simply, give when asked, don't dodge generosity. When I think about generosity, I often think of money, but actually it's often our time or simply our attention that is our most precious commodity. It's usually that person you don't want to talk to at work or at the school gate. I mean, seriously, be honest. Am I the only person who has put their airpods in and walked with absolute conviction, staring at the horizon, avoiding to speak to someone you don't want to? Just me? Just my wife? What a low bar to generosity I am setting. So Jesus ends by changing the focus of this Old Testament law on judgment and refocusing us on generosity. There's some commentaries which suggest that perhaps some of those in the crowd who drew near were misunderstanding or misusing the Old Testament law not to prevent escalation and perversely using it to justify their own right to retaliation, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. I'm allowed to do at least as much. I don't know. What is clear is that following the call a few verses earlier to be salt and light, in just a few sentences, Jesus has taken a message about equality in retribution and turned it into a call for gracious humility, abundant service, and radical generosity. And so this is how Jesus refreshes this Old Testament message, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. But that is not what he said. Because Jesus gave us an answer a few verses sooner. He didn't say he would refresh the laws. In Matthew 17, it says this. It said, I did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. The law was about consequence for sin. So what has happened to the consequence for sin? The law of rightful punishment still stands. Jesus never suggested he was redefining it. He was absolutely clear that he was fulfilling it. So if we don't get to retaliate to provocation, if we must lavish giving instead of cutting our losses, if we must give up our rights, not just to comfort but to safety in the face of confrontation, then what happened to the consequence of sin? And of course, with the advantage of just a few more chapters, we know that the laws of justice and of judgment are met in Jesus, in full, on the cross. This passage tells us how we can live as salt and light, to stand out as God's people acting not in passive submission, but in active love. But when we understand the whole context, past and future, we see that Jesus is also indicating his fulfillment of the law. Sin holds consequence, but in Christ, that consequence is met. Let me pray. Lord, thank you that like the disciples, we received this new teaching with you sat alongside us. Help us to refocus our energy not on chasing judgment, but on generosity, humility, and love. Not because justice is not important, but because we can surrender control of judgment to you, knowing that it is in you that judgment and justice are met in full. Amen.